Clear and Vivid is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When we use language, we're we're doing two things at once. We are conveying information, but we're also in a a social relationship. We're on speaking terms. So if I say, uh, if you could pass the guacamole, that would be awesome. Uh, It's kind of an odd uh, proposition when you think about it. I mean, it wouldn't really be awesome. And why not just say, give me the damn guacamole? Well, it's because (laughs) you really, you want it, but you don't want to be treating someone as if they're a servant. We've got to choose our words to get the message across without, uh, without signaling the wrong kind of social relationship. That's Steven Pinker in a conversation with me about conversation. We originally planned to be in front of an audience at the 92nd Street Y in New York, but instead our talk took place, like so many other conversations these days, on our computer screens. We talked about talking, but also about Stephen's argument, which is controversial to some, that things in the world are getting, by and large, better and better. Hi, and welcome to our conversation. I'm Alan Alda, and Stephen Pinker is with me, not literally, but on the screen. Stephen is a professor of psychology at Harvard, and he's filled our bookshelves and our minds with wonderful writing about who we are, why we're who we are, and what to do about it. I guess you could say maybe I've mischaracterized your writing, Stephen. It's great to be with you tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Last time we were together, I interviewed you 25 years ago on Scientific American Frontiers. But your fascinating work with children and the way they develop language. And since then, you've broadened your your reach of your perspective a great deal. You were telling me once about how we use euphemisms. Tell me a little more about that. I I didn't I didn't we didn't we were interrupted by somebody and I never got the end of that. What 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 did you mean by euphemisms? Well, we use language. We're really we're doing two things at once. We are conveying information. But we're also in a a social relationship. We're on speaking terms. Uh, And even though life forces us to discuss unpleasant subjects, because of the way the the cross-wiring in the brain, a word brings to mind what it refers to, what it refers to can be unpleasant. And so you're kind of assaulting your conversational partner when you discuss uh, emotionally fraught subjects hitting our listener over the head with a, with, with a weapon, we choose a euphemism that gets the idea across while simultaneously saying, I'm respecting your uh, sensibilities. An and example you gave me that was wonderful was, uh, Officer, can't we settle this here without going through a lot of paperwork? And the, paper, well, the paperwork it wants to go through is handing him a $20 bill. <laughs> Indeed. Officer, can we settle it here? Or uh, would you like to come up and see my etchings? Uh, right. With a modern equivalent, because right. I uh, hope so. I don't know anybody who has an etching. <laughs> <laughs> if they know what an etching is, is uh, you want to come up to Netflix and chill. Uh, is, the, uh, is, is the modern equivalent, or yeah. uh, you know, from from The Sopranos? Nice, nice story you got there. It would be a real shame if something happened to it. They all right, right. So, so there's that, an example of using a euphemism to deliver a threat. In a way, the threat has more power. 
sometimes you hear them say, you have beautiful children, you wouldn't want them to be unsafe. That's worse than saying, I'll kill your damn children. Well, that's right, because you can't call the person on it. The exception that proves the rule, of course, is when we actually do want someone to, uh, to suffer as the result of our words, and that's when we swear abusively. That, th- those are cases where the time for euphemism is past, and we use, if I can uh, introduce a jargon term, a dysphemism, D-Y-S, the opposite of the euphemism, which is a term that is explicitly designed to cause discomfort in the part of, of your listener. But it's, uh, it's the same principle, namely, when you talk, you're doing two things. You're, you're like a, a pair of modems that exchange uh, information, but on the other hand, you also have a social relationship. In general, the people that we talk to we're on speaking terms with, and we respect their sensibilities. But then there's the, the person that cuts us off in traffic, or who we, we, we want to uh, give them a piece of our mind, and then we reach for the disciplinism instead, uh, often the taboo terms. But we can also use uh, taboo terms, swear words, in, um, in a convivial setting to make it clear that this is a, this is a uh, social circle in which we don't have to watch what we say. Right. We can do it just to spice up our, uh, our, our own language. The, the using of euphemisms to make a threat, to express anger, to, to indicate in your last example that we're all friendly and close enough that we don't have to watch what we say. We can both engage in these naughty words. That all of those examples seem to me to point to something that I think is awfully basic to communication, and I wonder if you if you feel this way too. There's an awareness of the other person in communication, in communication that actually works. There's, there's something that passes for communication where you just spray information at the person and it's up to them to get it or not. But when oh. you want something to register, there seems to be this, this attention to what the other person is going through. What, what do you think about that? Oh, that is absolutely, that's essential to language. Uh, And it's behind politeness. So if I say, uh, if you could pass the guacamole, that would be awesome. Uh, It's kind of an odd uh, proposition when you think about it. I mean, it wouldn't really be awesome. And why not just say, give me the damn guacamole? Well, it's because (laughs) you really, you want it, but you don't want to be treating someone as if they're a servant. So you're you're conscious of the social relationship. And you have, again, because language does two things, it's always expressing the nature of your relationship. At the same time as it's a conduit uh, uh, for information, we've got to choose our words to get the message across without, uh, without signaling the wrong kind of social relationship. And in general, we have to, uh, conversation utterly depends on an awareness of the cooperative nature of the interaction. We work together in a conversation. Uh, if we didn't, We'd have to lay out every uh, missing premise, every uh, hidden uh, assumption. We it would bog conversation down. And again, the exception that proves the rule is legalese. In legal contracts, uh, almost by definition, you don't have a cooperative partner. You have an adversarial partner. Uh, yeah. So you have to say contract, three, three, in three different ways everything you mean. So, so there's no misunderstanding, right? You can't exactly. Be, you can't no, leave anything no, to the no ambiguity. Because the other person will exploit it. And that's right. what ordinary conversation is not. And that is what makes legalese so non-communicative. They're, trying, they're working so hard to be explicit about what they mean. It's hard to decipher it 
for the layperson. Indeed, and it's also what makes academies so impenetrable. It is a kind of defensiveness where you're uh, writing for an audience of potential adversaries, namely all the people out there, your fellow academics who are uh, just waiting for an opening to attack you. And mm -hmm. so you cover every base, you uh, cover various parts of your anatomy, you uh, close every loophole. <laughs> thank, thank you for that euphemism. I really, <laughs> really appreciate it. But ac academies is also notoriously uh, turgid and impenetrable. And again, it's because the cooperative nature of conversation doesn't hold in that context. Also, there's probably the element, would you think, of uh, we're in this private club and we speak this language and we understand these words, don't we? And the others don't. You know, I think there's some of that. And when I, when I wrote about writing and I tried to... In diagnose, On Style, your book On Style? Yeah, Sense of Style. Yeah. I and, love that. Uh, oh, thanks. I, and I tried to uh, identify what, what makes uh, academic prose so, so awful. And part of it may be a deliberate attempt to keep outsiders out with, with highfalutin jargon. But I find that even uh, my fellow academics who, as far as I know, are, have no need to bamboozle or impress, but their writing still stinks. <laughs> <laughs> Partly it's because they can't get out of the habit of being um, defensive, of never saying anything that someone else can criticize. But the, and then the other, the other problem with not just academies, but also corporaties and bureaucraties is uh, part of it is what I, what I call the curse of knowledge. The yeah. fact that when you know something, it's extraordinarily difficult to imagine what it's like for someone who doesn't know it. It doesn't even occur to you that you're using jargon and abbreviations and technical terms and familiar idioms, idioms that are familiar to you within your social circle. But as soon as you step outside that little circle, uh, people don't know what you're talking about. And finally, the, and this, this brings us back to our, our, uh, our meeting 25 years ago with Scientific American Frontiers, uh, that part of what makes for effective communication in writing, as it did in, in the show, is having the right social relationship between the, uh, the conversational partners. Unlike what scientists often do, is, which is they condescend to people who aren't fellow scientists, they kind of treat everyone as if they're like a four-year-old and they have to talk to them in motherese. They couldn't get away with that with you. You were a celebrity, but you didn't pretend to understand anything that you didn't understand. No, well, my ignorance came to me naturally. <laughs> I, I didn't pretend that, not to know either. But it was exactly that ignorance that forced them, at least most of the time. But to, to talk to me instead of making little mini lectures. And we had uh, we had a relationship where they weren't talking to the camera. They really had they were confronted with me because I'd shake them sometimes if I didn't understand it. I'd, I'd say, "Tell me another way. I don't get it yet." You know, that relationship that we developed. I've since come to think, and it's funny. It began 25 years ago when we first met. I've come to believe the importance of that relationship is so great that. I think it's even possible. I'm really curious to know what you think about this, having enjoyed your book on style. I think you can make an estimate as you lay down the beginning of a sentence and get to the end and then start a new sentence. You can make a rough estimate of what's happening in the reader's mind and what they're ready for next. And that attention that we were talking about 
that we pay other people when we're using euphemisms or, or when we're relating to them, speaking with them, watching for signals in the face and that kind of thing. I have a feeling that we can, at least it's something that I try to do when I write, and I wonder if you come anywhere near that yourself, is to estimate what the audience, the reader is probably going through. Oh, absolutely. And that is the key to writing, is that kind of empathy. Not so much empathy in the sense of feeling the other person's pain, uh, although that doesn't hurt either. Although with my writing, sometimes it occurs. That. <laughs> uh, but uh, trying to anticipate what, they're, what they know and what they don't know. What is a reasonable guess as to what a, an intelligent person uh, knows or doesn't know about your subject? And, and as you, you, the way you said it was exactly right. As you work your way through the sentence, for each word, for each idiom, each figure of speech, it's, is it a reasonable guess that my reader uh, knows it, uh, understands it? What about when you're, too, when you're exploring an issue that most people are not going to take to because it doesn't seem intuitive to them, like the area you've been exploring for a few years now, that things are getting better. There's less violence, there's less illness, there's less poverty. Do you, are you aware of the fact that, and probably you are because people must tell you, that's, that's malarkey, things are worse now. It's, <laughs> I know things are worse. I can tell, I read the paper, I see they're worse. So how do you handle that? How do you communicate an idea that you're pretty sure is not going to be accepted in, as something intuitively correct? Oh, yes. Uh, and the answer is I use graphs. Uh, as much as I revere and admire language, it's got its limitations. And conveying quantitative information is one of the limitations. But we are visual creatures. In fact, in the use of language itself, another uh, key lesson, uh, I think, is to write in a way that your reader can form mental images. In a sense, mm -hmm. language is a means to an end. It's a, a means to getting your reader to visualize things that you are visualizing. But then when it comes to quantitative trends, uh, if, if I say that the um, that, that fewer people are being killed in wars, people will just say, what are you talking about? What about Syria? And the, you know, what about, uh, what about Yemen? What about uh, Afghanistan? And they're right, those wars are continuing. The point is that although the number of deaths in war hasn't gone to zero, it's way down compared to what it used to be. Now, what does way down mean? Uh, I mean those are words, I just did my best to convey the concept. But when I show a, a graph, that uh, where the line keeps going farther and farther down, and now you see it's bouncing along the floor, whereas before it was bumping its head on the ceiling, then it's vivid in a way, and, and, I, and I hope convincing in a way that sentences cannot be. Steven Pinker and I will talk more about the argument he made in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. The idea that while it may not seem so these days, many things in the world really are getting better after this short break. The sponsor of Clear and Vivid is the Kavli Foundation, a partner in the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The 2020 Kavli Prize laureates were announced on May 27th, 
with the participation of the World Science Festival and the festival's co-founder, Brian Green. You can watch the announcement and meet this year's winners, as well as learn more about the history of the Kavli Prize at kavliprize.org. That's K-A-V-L-I prize.org. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the Kavli Foundation. In some future episodes of Clear and Vivid, I'll be talking with several other Kavli Prize laureates, and I'll be exploring with them the very big, our universe, the very small, the realm of atoms and molecules, and the very complex, the brain and the nervous system. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Steven Pinker and his claim that for most people in the world, life is better than it has ever been. I think it's fascinating. I think those folks listening to the conversation can test their ability to accept some of these ideas, some of these, the notion that 
some of the things we think have got wor- not only worse, but out of hand are actually better than they once were. What, what are some of those things? War would certainly be one of them. Uh, the, the rate of death in war now is, uh, I mean, it's not zero. It, it, it ought to be zero and we should push it to zero. But it is about one twentieth of what it was in the, say, the, the early 1950s when, uh, when, when MASH was set during the time of the Korean War. Uh, another example is, is uh, extreme poverty, defined typically standardly as $1.90 per person per day. And again, there's lots of poverty, but there used to be way, way more poverty. So 200 years ago, by that, by that standard, about 90% of the world lived in extreme poverty. Now it is about uh, 9%. Mm. Uh, illiteracy. Literacy used to be a, a privilege of the uh, aristocracy or certain religious uh, sects. Now a majority of, uh, a large majority of uh, children can, uh, can read and write. Uh, and uh, of course, longevity. The, uh, for most of human history, life expectancy at birth hovered around uh, 30 years. Today, it is uh, about 71 years worldwide and more than 80 in, in uh, wealthy countries. So healthy, wealthy, and wise, those are the big three, the three biggest uh, indicators of human well-being, and uh, all of them have gone uh, uh, way up. I'll, I'll add safety, uh, not just safety, safety certainly from, um, from homicide, Violent crime is way down from its uh, uh, its high years in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But we're also safer from getting killed in car crashes. Uh, we're less likely to drown. We're less likely to die in a fire. We're des- less likely to uh, be asphyxiated by poison here's gas. The one, here's one that just doesn't seem to have any reason associated with it. We're less likely to be hit by lightning, you said? We're less likely to be struck by a oh, bullet. Well, now, lightning. come on. What is that? That doesn't make sense. So, how, yeah. how does that represent human progress? It's, presumably, it's not because God is any less angry with us. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> you know, largely, most of that is because we just don't work outdoors as much as we used to. Our grandparents uh, were farmers. We're not. But it's also, and that, that's probably the biggest driver. But it's more than that. It's um, um, weather forecasting. We know there's going to be a thunderstorm. Uh, it's uh, houses and uh, tractors and cars that are better grounded. Um, so, and, and it often happens, by the way, that uh, a number of forces push a, uh, a hazard down. So why do you think, it always interests me when something is all around us, surrounds us like this fact that things are getting better, judging by the, the figures you just gave us. Why do we resist it? What, what information are we taking in that convinces us that things are getting worse when we're surrounded by the fact that they're getting better? What, what's causing that disjunction? Part of it is uh, the, the nature of news, because news is about things that happen, uh, not things that don't happen. Most things that happen, are, or at least that happen suddenly, are, are bad things, like a terrorist attack, a, a shooting, a... a a uh, fall of the stock market, and for that matter, of course, a, a, a pandemic. Uh, things that uh, go right tend to uh, be gradual, and they increase a few percentage points a year, but that can compound, and so that it, it, it really adds up over the years. But there's never a Thursday in October when we read that global poverty has gone down. As Max Roser has pointed out, the, 
papers could have had the headline 137,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, yeah. every day for 30 years, but never yeah. ran that headline. Right. And so a billion people had escaped from extreme poverty and no, over the last few decades and no one knows about it. Now, of course, bad things do happen and uh, that hardly needs to be mentioned in the, uh, the time that we're living in now where uh, uh, th things have gotten a lot worse in, in, uh, in, in one domain of life. So people have, I've heard people call you an optimist because you ascribe to the idea that things are getting better. And yet I've heard you say you're not an optimist, nor are you a pessimist. You need, you, the glass is neither half full nor half empty to you, right? How would you describe yourself? Well, I, I, um, I use the, the, the term invented by Hans Rosling, the, the late Swedish uh, doctor and TED, TED Talk star, a possibilist. Uh, I think that knowing the improvements that have occurred in the past uh, mean that it, it is at least possible for there to be improvements in, in the future, but they crucially, they don't happen by themselves. And again, the, uh, the current pandemic is a, a reminder of that. We, we as a species, we eliminated smallpox, we brought HIV AIDS under control, we drastically reduced rates of death from measles and yellow fever and diphtheria and whooping cough and, and are making progress against malaria. But it's not because progress is just this escalator, this force that, that, that makes things better. Quite the contrary, the universe Kind of doesn't care about us, and, and mm -hmm. in many ways, it's trying to do us in. But it, when humans apply their problem-solving abilities with the goal of making everyone better off, little by little, now and again, they can they can succeed. I was thinking in the past few days, as more and more scientists are saying, there's a war against science that's taking place in our culture. And I'm wondering if it's a war against science or something more like a war against experts, people from out of town who act like they know it all. Yes. Who by, well, by knowing something I don't know makes them think they're better than me. So it really is crucial to establish that trust in the institution of, of science, um, partly by showing its successful track record, but also uh, kind of lifting the hood and showing how, how it works. That it'd be very difficult, not impossible, but difficult for scientists to promote a dogma indefinitely, given the, uh, the, the standard in science that you can, anyone can criticize anyone else. That I think that even what, get something you, what you said about showing how science works helping people understand that is probably the most important thing we can do to engender trust in trustworthy scientists. Because if you just say, here's a scientist, he knows a lot. Look, he's wearing a white coat. He must know a lot. He knows more than your Aunt Tilly. I'm not so sure I can trust my Aunt Tilly. I can't know who's this guy. You know? <laughs> no, you know? Indeed. And, and, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't trust a, a guy or a woman because they're wearing a white coat, but you should, <clears throat> but when, when you know how science, uh, first of all, we know how science is done, namely at least when it's done well, and scientists are always uh, trying to improve the rules of the game so mm -hmm. that sources of error and bias are, are, are eliminated and the mechanisms that, because I mean, scientists are, are only human. They make 
mistakes. They have no pipeline to the truth. Just but they're, they, pro- they're professional skeptics. The people who say they're skeptical about climate science are not as good at being skeptics as the scientists are who are more likely to attack their own ideas first than they are to attack somebody else's or to defend their ideas. That, that awareness that, they, as you say, they do make mistakes, but most of the time they want to know if they're making a mistake because they don't want to tell something that's not true. Yes, they don't. They don't. They don't want to be humiliated by. Uh, oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> they're carrying it all the way. Yeah, but it, it's all the more reason, uh, you know. And, and this is a, a kind of one of my side concerns <clears throat> that um, the, the backsliding in universities away from free speech, open ideas, the the, uh, uh, the, the, the ideological conformity, the political correctness, the uh, policing of ideas can be corrosive precisely because it erodes that uh, knowledge of how the rules are, what the rules of the game are. Namely, you shouldn't be able to get away with, uh, with claiming something false because someone will call you on it. But when, you, when the impression that the public has is that universities are just another uh, cult where you really can't speak your mind or you'll be drummed out or you'll be canceled or you'll be um, shut down by protests, that feeds the conspiracy theories that the scientists really um, uh, uh, aren't in pursuit of their, the, the best notion of truth. And indeed, when I sometimes speak to clim- climate um, skeptics, often very intelligent people, and I say, oh my God, I mean, look at all the studies, look at the consensus of the uh, scientists from several fields. They say, well, yeah, but they're all in a university. Everyone knows that you can't say what you want in a university. If you descent from the orthodoxy, you'll be, uh, you'll be canceled. And uh, I think that's all the more reason why we must cherish and preserve the, uh, the, the standards of open inquiry and open criticism, precisely to establish the credibility of science when we need it most. Well, I've had a lot of pleasure tonight talking with you. It was as much fun as I thought it would be, sometimes more so. I think we can take a few questions from the audience. Should, should I pick one? Sure. Uh, we've got uh, Nandor Pinter. Hi, thank you very much for the conversation. I'm really enjoying it. My question is about David Deutsch, Professor Pinker. You open uh, your, your book, Enlightenment uh, uh, Now, with a, uh, a quote from David Deutsch, and I'd like to ask how his work influenced your work. Oh, yes. Yeah. So David Deutsch wrote a book called The Beginning of Infinity. Uh, which uh, I think an absolutely fascinating book, which made a, uh, an elegant and forceful case for um, um, what, he, what he calls enlightenment, not exactly the, the sense of the 18th century intellectual movement, but in, in its spirit, namely that problems are inevitable, but problems are solvable. Unless something is inconsistent with the laws of the universe, then it is attainable given the right knowledge. If we knew enough, and if we have the goal of solving problems, then it, they are not uh, impossible in principle. In thinking about that, it seems to me that while you probably can eventually or somebody can eventually solve some of what seems like the most intractable of problems, don't you have to also get used to just not being able to come up with an answer because you don't have all the data, you don't have the imagination, you it's such an unfamiliar problem that people need to have a stab at it for 
a hundred years or so before somebody can come up with an answer. You have to be willing to see it as a mystery, it seems to me. Indeed, and that is very much a theme of the beginning of infinity. But uh, in fact, in one place, I think he says, I think this is probably an exaggeration, that all evil is the result of insufficient knowledge. Mm. Um, that's probably too extreme. But, uh, but indeed, we are, our knowledge is, our, our ignorance is always infinite. No matter what we know, we can always ask the question, well, why is it that way? As opposed to all the other ways it could have been. Uh, so, and that given our, our necessary ignorance, uh, at coexisting with our knowledge, there will always be problems that we have not yet solved. So let me pick somebody there. Uh, I see a hand raised by Lauren Murphy. Yeah. Hi. I have a question about, since you guys are talking a lot about communicating science to the public or skeptic groups, do you have a medium that you think is best to reach those groups? Um, Alan, although I know you're really into movies, do you guys think that using movies that scientists create could be a way to reach more of the public? Yeah, I, I think there, there are a variety of media and the, the more, the better. Um, the one that I avail myself of the most is writing what I hope are accessible books. But science documentary, science shows are invaluable and, in fact, uh, can provide something that, that mere text cannot. A real feel for the people who do science and a feel for what the phenomena are like. So it, the most obvious is in, in the nature documentaries, David Attenborough, uh, BBC series, where uh, there's just no way that you could appreciate the wonder and beauty and diversity of nature unless you see it with your own eyes. But Scientific American Frontiers, the, the show that, uh, that Alan starred in, was also excellent. And there was a real-time dialogue so that if the, what you cannot get in, in a book, unless the author is really, really good, is if the, if the reader doesn't understand something, there isn't a person there to, to probe, like, what did you mean by that? Or that could mean several things, or did I understand it properly? But when you have uh, Alan there asking the question in real time, then that, uh, the confusions can be forestalled and, and a deeper level of understanding can happen. Thank you for saying that. Lauren, on the subject of movies, a little wary of movies as a medium to help people understand science. It's very hard to tell a story in dramatic terms that stays true to the rigors of science. Because there's a lot about science that's kind of boring to a lot of people. How about Bob Schiebel? What's your question, Bob? Uh, thank you, uh, both of you, uh, for an excellent talk. Uh, while we're talking about science communication, um, I wondered what the two of you thought about Dr. Anthony Fauci. So he's, um, unlike most scientists who get to write in a book or a journal, um, or on a TV program, he's having to deliver science to the American public in the middle of a pandemic in real time. We see him on TV almost nightly. And he's also um, has kind of a dual role. He has to communicate to the American public, but he also has to be careful that he doesn't always run afoul of his boss, of, of President Trump. And it seems to me that they don't always completely agree. So the rhetoric has to be particularly difficult, I think, for him. I personally think he's done amazing work, but maybe I'm biased. So what's your perspective on Dr. Anthony Fauci and, and his communication of, of this pandemic? Stephen, you go first. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I certainly don't envy him, uh, his role, because <clears throat> as you say, he's got to present the, uh, the, the truth, the unvarnished truth, uh, just as a, 
a matter of, of sheer responsibility. You can't uh, uh, paint a happy fa face on things. Um, like it or not, he is. Uh, he can be fired by our president. We have a president who is uh, notoriously uh, hostile or at least indifferent to the best scientific expertise. So, and, and he he will serve. Fauci will serve the public better if he keeps his job than if he gets fired. Uh, and um, to convey the uh, convey the truth without saying anything that will make his boss look needlessly bad and therefore jeopardize his own position is a, a real act of, of delicacy and euphemism and uh, self-control, uh, which few of us could manage as well as he has. I agree. I think his ability to tell the truth in terms that sometimes actually contradict the opinions of people above him, but don't, but aren't, don't do it in a, a negative way. And he doesn't even seem to have to use the euphemisms we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. He just manages to wend his way between the sabers over his head and tell what is the truth. And there's one aspect about him that I think allows him to do that uh, in, a, in a way that is very palatable. We haven't had somebody like Walter Cronkite, who was trusted by the country until we got to Fauci. He has a sincerity about him. He doesn't look like he's selling you something. He's telling you what he knows on the basis of scientific inquiry. And there's something, um, I don't know whether it's avuncular or respectful, just simply respectful of the audience. And, and that you read that and you feel comfortable listening to him. And I think that's a tremendous service he can, because we, as we were saying before, you need to be able to trust the people you're hearing from. And one of the ways you decide on the fly, if you don't have access to the academic credentials that the person has and the whole superstructure that has given that person the imprimatur of a university that he has, in fact, or she has the right to speak this way. If you don't have if you don't have access to all that information and you're just judging it on the fly, you're picking up cues from the person's manner, and you can you and in the same way that you judge a used car salesman, not to denigrate all used car salesmen, but the ones I've run into, <laughs> uh, you sense a little bit of slime behind the uh, avuncularity, and uh, he doesn't have that. I don't see it in him, and I think that. I think that people go with that. Thank you, Bob. That, that was a, an interesting question. Look, a whole bunch of people have joined in. You, you want to pick one, Stephen? Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. How about um, Amanda Champagne? Hi, yes. Can you hear me? Yes. I would love to hear your thoughts on what the biggest challenge to communication during the quarantine and how right. do you both overcome it? Right. Go, go ahead, Stephen. Well, the... Uh, physical presence, the, the proximity, the, the leaning forward, the um, sometimes the uh, just the shape of your, your the muscles around your eyes in a way that sometimes you don't get on the screen. Um, all of those channels that are much harder to convey on Zoom, for example, to say nothing of the reassurance of, 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 uh, of touch, uh, of closeness. Uh, but it is, I find it surprising how effective electronic communication can be. Zoom and FaceTime allow us to exchange information in real time better than our 
uh, our ancestors did. It doesn't substitute for being in the same room, but but it's uh, surprisingly good. I think Amanda's uh, question raises an issue for me is uh, not just the problem that we're not in the same room with people we want to communicate with and we have to do it over Zoom, but the problem can arise in communicating with someone who is in the room with you, (laughs) a mate you live with, and... It's interesting, the, the cabin fever phenomenon that we, we, we're beginning to hear a lot about. It may be a breakdown in what we've been talking about a lot during this hour, which is failing to read the cues coming from the other person. We all have our ups and downs. And if the person next to you is in a down, t- a down time, it's a good idea to be able to notice it. And those times when I haven't noticed it, I've, uh, I haven't contributed to the well-being of the both of us. Uh, yes, indeed. And there is the uh, built-in limitation that uh, eye contact is quite literally impossible uh, on a Zoom simply because the uh, surface that displays the face is not the surface that records your own image. No, I have the impression you're looking me right in the eye. What are, you, are you looking at the lens? I'm looking at the lens, which is a little disconcerting because I'm yeah. pretending that. <laughs> whereas if I if I if I look at you, uh, then I'm not I'm I'm kind of not right. making eye contact. Right. Maybe I try be... to look at your your little picture un, right under the lens. I'm looking at that most of the time, but your face is so animated, I get drawn down to your regular big face, and, <laughs> and now I'm not looking at the lens anymore. And that's a very important thing. There 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 are. Some people have tried to correct that by building something that sits over the lens and you see the image like on a teleprompter. And things like that are probably going to be offered to us as time goes on. If this thing lasts much longer than the most optimistic estimates give us, I bet there are going to be a lot of aids to just the kind of thing you're talking about, being able better to look the person in the eye, hearing better, having more natural sound. And then we'll get to those, um, those gloves where I can shake hands with you and feel your hand. Well, that's an optimistic note, and I think our time is pretty much up. I had a lot of fun with you tonight, Stephen. Thank you. I always do, and I'm grateful to you, and I'm grateful to the 92nd Street Y for making this conversation possible. Me too. Good night, everybody. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Steven Pinker is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard, and he's the author of over a dozen books, including a couple we've mentioned, The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century, and The Better Angels of Our Nature. His most recent book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. You can keep track of his fertile mind on his website, stephenpinker.com, and on Twitter, at S.A. Pinker. 
This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Corey Bargman, winner of the 2012 Cosley Prize in Neuroscience. I asked her how it felt to discover something no one in the world had ever known, even something that to many of us would seem unimportant, even uninteresting. Yes, I have had that sense of seeing something and knowing it for the first time. And I want to say that when that moment came, which was at about two in the morning in California, the first thing I wanted to do was to share that knowledge with someone else. And it was a problem because I couldn't very well call up the people that I worked with at that hour and wake them up. But very fortunately, my sister Dory, at the time, was working the night shift, doing closed captioning for the hearing impaired. And so I was able to call her up at her office and explain to her that I was sitting and had in front of me the very molecule that allowed worms to smell buttered popcorn. We talk about how discovering that molecule, the molecule that allowed a microscopic worm to smell buttered popcorn, set off a chain of research that led to an understanding of how the senses of smell and taste work in all animals, including you and me. Corey Bargman, next time on Clear and Vivid. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>